You're listening to the Australian Hunting and Beyond podcast with Matt. Where we talk about hunting, shooting, fishing, camping, and everything else that the great outdoors has to offer. Let's get into it. All right, I've been hanging for this. I really enjoy talking to a range of different people, and I say it on the podcast all the time, is I have a what we call probably a growth mindset, and I'm always looking to better myself and learn more. And I'm pretty opinionated when it comes to the sort of 1080 stuff and what's going on in the environmental sector, and I probably do have my hunting hat on. So sometimes maybe the glasses are a little jaded. So I thought, what better way than to get somebody in who has a fair bit of knowledge in the subject? So tonight, I'm joined by Eric. So Eric, thank you for coming on. I'll get you to introduce yourself and tell them your background, mate. Yeah, so um, yeah, my name's Eric um, and I've been a bow hunter since I was 12, been involved in hunting since I was about five or six. Uh, I've done hunting overseas Probably the first memory I had was hunting in Denmark, doing the traditional hunting styles over there, um, which is fairly untraditional as far as humans go, but it's it's still a lot of fun. Um, So I've always been around sort of the outdoors and and nature in in sort of a hunting um, and fishing sort of way. And I've kind of sort of built my life around putting back and trying to improve the world around me in the most like easy way. Um, And to me, like, I could have, you know, done what everyone else did, go to uni, get a, a degree in finance or anything, something like that. But I decided I'll, you know, have a crack at trying to improve my local area and, and generally Australia because there are some issues that we have in regards to environmental management. Um, obviously, it's a, it's a complicated and sort of very nuanced problem. So, yeah, I was just really just, you know, my whole life has been trying to sort of go towards improving Australia. No, look, props to you because it is probably going to be a bit of a thankless job and there is not, um, what's the word, not notoriety, but there's not real, we don't hear from scientists much these days, I don't feel. I feel that it's, and what we do, it's very pushed one way with the media and I think that's where podcasts have really taken on a bit of a life of their own in the ability to get people's thoughts out and about, which is fantastic. So, uh, mate, do you want to tell us about the degree and things like that, just so people understand the, the where you're coming from as well? Because I know you're a hunter sure. and you're also in the environmental science space. So I think that's probably a real good one just to touch on straight up. Yeah. So I got my Bachelor of Environment and Sustainability. I got that through the Australian National University. I was majoring in uh, sort of a range of things. I was very interested in soil science and biodiversity conservation. Um, so those were my two majors at university. So I had some great lecturers that are leaders in studies and postdoctorate research, um, specifically in biodiversity conservation, um, soil science and agriculture as well. I did a fair bit of work with us, agricultural innovation mainly focusing on supply chain innovation about, you know, improving the profitability. Sadly, it always comes down to profitability, but improving the profitability of the agricultural sector um, and looking at key drivers for the issues that sort of impact uh, agriculture from everything from broadacre cropping to grazing, sugarcane plantations, whatever agricultural sort of space, those studies and research that we were doing in the university that my lecturers were teaching. So. 
Yeah, I sort of haven't really worked too directly in sort of a research space. I th- I'm not. I'm a bit too ADHD to sit there and punch out, you know, ten thousand word documents. Um, it is a difficult thing to do. Um, I'm much more suited to sort of, you know, boots on the ground level stuff. So that's kind of where I'm looking to go in my career. And yeah, that's pretty much the basis of my my education. All right. So that gives you a bit of an overview of a few different things. And I know we started talking when we. Uh, we started having a chat about 1080 poison and that's one of my biggest concerns is that I don't think, look, any poison getting sprayed around the landscape, I can't see as a positive thing. And I'm really curious to know your thoughts because if you've been looking at what's going on with the soil and how that breaks down, is there like impacts from these poisons going into the ground if the baits are dropped? I know they say 1080 in New Zealand is sort of water soluble, so it breaks down. That still concerns me that that's not going to happen. So 1080, although the way that it's sort of synthesized now isn't natural, they use precursor synthetic chemicals like any sort of thing, like the same thing when you take your Panadol, like it's all come from synthetics. So the sort of argument that it's unnatural sort of doesn't really stand in that sense. I, I would say it does in some, you know, plant species in Australia, 1080 or um, fluoroacetate, you know, is present. So that's similar with most chemicals. There will be things that are sort of, you know, similar in the environment. But from a, from a breakdowns perspective and from the research that I've done, because um, leading up to this podcast, I wanted to make sure that I wasn't just, you know, going off you know, whatever the common sort of thought is in regards to what the scientific community has actually shown, I wanted to make sure that I was digging deep enough to be able to provide like a good overview of 1080 use in Australia, broader use in New Zealand, its risks um, and its benefits um, to the Australian society. So from my research and some of the research coming out of New Zealand, and this is um, something that you've touched upon in some of your previous podcasts, is Yes, it is soluble in its direct like form. So in the case of the possum pellet baits, they say it takes, you know, between three days to a couple weeks to break down, and that's without it being ingested. So the real interesting thing that I found since I spoke to you on the phone when we first sort of wanted to talk about this podcast was the fact that I found out that if a deer, for example, eats a 1080 bait, 1080 can be present in its bones for up to 215 days. And that is something that's going to be significant in regards to people's pet dogs. Um, obviously, in the case of Australia, we don't employ or deploy, sorry, uh, baits targeting herbicides currently. Oh, not herbicides, herbivores. Um, so, yeah, we, we mainly use 1080 in Australia to target uh, foxes, dogs. Um, we do a bit of pig work up north, not so much down south here. But yeah, that was that was what I found was that in some different parts of the body, there's different rates of breakdown. So yes, it's it's it is complicated, um, especially going back to um, what you've said in previous podcasts. But I'll summarise it here: is that yeah, there is a risk for people's pet animals, um, spe- specifically farm dogs and hunting dogs, to consume those baits. It does become quite complicated in about its application. So. I think in the Australian context, excluding what's going on in New Zealand, 
I'd be very interested to see the research that they put out in regards to using 1080 to target deer and goats. Um, cause as you've seen in those, uh, feral deer and feral goat abatement plans, they have talked about implementing a poison control method potentially to target these, but I don't think they have done enough research at this current state to be able to, you know, say for sure that it's going to be a benefit. But I do say that, you know, if the research shows that they can actually specifically target deer species, I think that is definitely what the government will be looking to do. And I think it's very emotive for us hunters for when they are specifically aiming to take away, you know, something that we enjoy doing. It's our passion. It's our hobby. And for a lot of people, it's our main source of food. So me included. So I think it is extremely complicated in that sense. And yeah, there's definitely some interesting stats there that I can sort of mention in regards to the usage of 1080 to target predators in Australia and yeah, so forth. So, all right, well, let's go back two steps because I know we spoke on the phone about 1080s use in New Zealand and you touched on that it's different to how it's used here in Australia. Mm. Can you elaborate on that so I have a bit more understanding because I'll say it, I just think 1080 is 1080 when you're putting it out in a bait. So there mm. is a different type or it's, it's employed a different way? Yeah, so for the majority of 1080 use, um, so in WA they use meat baits, same in New South Wales in Queensland. Um, in Queensland, they do bait cereal crop, like grains and stuff like that, uh, corn, molasses, that kind of thing to target pigs. But in New Zealand, the majority of their administration for 1080 and the reason they have such high tonnage is because they're employing cereal baits, which are targeting herbivores. So herbivore baits are very indiscriminate in how they land on the soil. So 1080 baits, when we aerial bait in, in Australia, we're throwing, you know, a piece of meat that's got 1080 administered into it out of a helicopter. Our studies have shown um, that native wildlife here are fairly resistant to 1080. So the statistics show, so there's a, there's a metric they use to determine the toxicity of a certain compound, and that's the LD50. So that's the lethal dose for 50% of the population to die if they consume a chemical. So that chemical and that LD50 number is similar to what they use testing human drugs. So I can't tell you the LD50 for Panadol, but we do know exactly how much Panadol it takes for half of the population to die in a given certain sample. So the interesting thing about the LD50 numbers, and especially the LD50 numbers in New Zealand is the possum is very resistant to 1080 in comparison to a dog. So research shows it's roughly 115 milligrams of 1080 per kilo body weight for a possum and for a dog it's 0.66 milligrams per kilo. So the baits that we throw out here are less likely to damage our native predators so our Dasyurus maculatus, which is our little spotted uh, quoll, those are the most, those are the ones I know the most about in regards to 1080 use, and they haven't shown 1080 to have an impact on the, those species. But indirectly, 1080 can have 
impacts. But that's we might get into that one a bit later because that's um, that's getting into the more nuanced parts of, of the usage of it. But yeah, so in New Zealand, they use a lot to kill the possums because they need a lot to die. Deer don't need as much per body weight as the possums. So that's where I think it's going to be interesting to see if they decide to use 1080 in Australia for deer. I think that will be interesting because they don't need as high a dosage. So there's less likely for bycatch here, but, you know, it'll be interesting to see how it, how it pans out for sure. One of the things that has sort of struck me as an issue is obviously human consumption. And we, we talked about that in, in detail off air and I am a bit sort of lost for words and about the fact that 1080 can stain deer bones for 215 days. That is a little scary to me because I do like bone marrow and cooking that up. <laughs> and yep. that's just, I mean, there's alarm bells going off in my head straight away going, oh, if, if Jesus, that's dangerous. And if you're talking also when we talk about the lethal dose, what happens if an animal doesn't have the lethal dose and they're still running around is that any potential impact for secondary poisoning, whether it be other animals, whether it be us, canines, the like? So from my research, sublethal doses of 1080 aren't going to – your body will be able to metabolize or the animal's body will be able to metabolize that 1080 from my research. So obviously there's varying degrees of recovery. They say – can be anywhere from 18 hours to 21 days for a sublethal dose recovery. Um, obviously, that, that number will vary across different species and stuff like that. I'm honestly unsure about how 1080 persists in bones of sublethal poisoning. I don't think that I could find – I don't think there's anyone that's actually done any research on that. And that's definitely something that I would, you know, be interested in, 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 in understanding because currently – there isn't a lot of research around feral animals. Um, there's definitely not a lot of research on the interaction of 1080 with feral animals for meat processing. New Zealand's probably the leading study region in the whole world. Australia would be close. But, yeah, I don't know if there's a lot of research going on in that, in that sector, so I can't for certain say if that's going to be an impact and if something that we should be looking out for as hunters. Look, and that's where, from my perspective, and look, I'm no expert, and hence why you're here, because you're far more experienced in the field than I am. I'm going on the back of my understanding of how data is collected and surveys and sample sizes and studies, because that's what I teach about as a profession. So I have a reasonable understanding enough that I think I'm pretty confident in that side of it. Everything I see really doesn't show me any great detail that it's been done on a larger scale. So when I'm seeing data, it's very small scale, isolated pockets. Mm. And that concerns me that we're going off information that isn't probably as accurate as it could be. So we're sort of I don't know, to put it in layman's terms is we've got a dartboard and mm. we're using that little dartboard and, and sort of throwing a, a dart at it when it should probably be a six-foot wall 
of research that we have that yeah. understanding of and we don't. Mm. That is one of my concerns because I just don't feel we have enough information. And I'm, I'm big on information is key. Knowledge is power. The more you know about something, the better it is. And mm. that is why, I'm, as I said, I'm super excited tonight and you probably can tell I'm hanging off every word that you're saying because it does thoroughly interest me, this stuff. Is that a concern to you that there's not enough information out there or the limited information is potentially being used without knowing enough? Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. I think if you ask any scientist about data, every one of them will say there isn't enough data. And that's, that's the case, especially with environmental science, because as you know, temporal scales and geographical scales in which issues are arising, like feral deer, are, you know, spread out across Australia, almost the size of Europe, you know, even larger area than Europe. So it's hard for us to be able to, like, take a non-specific example. So if you're looking at a very localised scale issue, for example, in New Zealand, they'll have a study area. We have to use small areas to be able to inform on what the outcome would be in larger areas. And that's just the nature of the beast. There isn't enough funding in, you know, that we put into research and especially in environmental research to be able to describe a lot of the problems that we are we're facing. It's all about time. It's all about funding. And it's all about sort of institutions that are willing to sort of fund those. And a lot of universities are, and specifically CSIRO, are doing a lot of research into the impacts of feral animals now. Um, so there is, there is good science coming out, but I definitely think there should be a larger volume of studies looking at these issues because without it, it's, as you say, it's very difficult to sort of be able to say that this solution will work across the entirety of Australia. Look, when it comes to data, the other thing that concerns me slightly is that it can be skewed. You can almost go into a study knowing the predetermined outcome that you want to achieve and extrapolate the data that you want to prove your point. Now, I'm not saying that happens, but I know that in a lot of studies that I've conducted and gone through, we almost could comfortably know the outcome prior to doing the experiments and doing the, you know, whether it be surveys or collecting information Mm. or whatever it might be. That just makes me concerned because I sort of look at it and go, well, who's funding different things? And is there then, if you've got, say, and and my big one is if you look at the Invasive Species Council, they are very anti-hunter and Mm -hmm. that's pretty clear. Now, they do a lot of funding and they do a lot of lobbying and they're involved in a lot of these plans like the feral deer plan, like the goat abatement plan, their name is all over it. That concerns me because, as I said before, I've got my hunter hat on and they have the opposite hat on, but if they've got a lot of influence or they're looking at a lot of things, that really does worry me. And especially that, I guess, when we talk about animals that are not supposed to be on the landscape, the general consensus is get rid of them. I mean, Mm. I know a lot of hunters will feel differently about that comment and that's fine. Everyone's entitled to their opinion, but that also creates a, I guess, almost like an uphill battle to justify why some of these animals should be on the landscape. 
and be able to prove that they actually hold some value, whether it be economic, whether it be to help people like just get out into the bush and lifestyle and good food. There's so many positives and I know you know this as a hunter, but how hard is it for people that aren't hunters in your field to see those sort of positive aspects of hunting rather than just some easy fix such as poisoning? And we'll talk about how that's the easy fix in a moment. I think it's easy to say that scientists or environmental scientists or people in the invasive council have an anti-hunter sentiment. I definitely don't think they do. I definitely think a lot of hunters have soiled the name for the rest of us that do the right thing. And I think I can quote a lot of the stuff that the Invasive Species Council actually think about hunters and our role in feral animal, animal management. And I think it all comes down to some key issues with hunters. Um, and this is the scientific basis about, about, you know, the value of recreational hunting. And some of the key points are that hunting habits and preferences are contrary to effective control. So that just means that hunter preferences for particular types of prey and particular hunting conditions often limit their contribution to feral animal control. So generally, from a deer hunting uh, perspective, even goats, uh, pigs, I'm a bow hunter. We're renowned for getting let on to people's private properties and only shooting the biggest bulls and the biggest stags because we want to go back next year and do the same thing. Where from a perspective of, a, of an environmental scientist or a conservationist, they're looking to remove everything because every animal on that landscape is going to have a negative impact in their eyes. So it becomes complicated because as a hunter, we all like to think that we're, you know, the bee's knees and we, we're doing a great job. But from a recreational hunting perspective, this, it's the stats out of New Zealand are that 5% of the hunters in New Zealand kill 50% of the deer. So that means 95% of the hunters are getting the remaining 50. So there's a lot of varying degrees of skill in regards to our ability to actually have a negative impact on these feral populations. And the other thing I would say is hunters in rec hunting, we're not getting enough animals down. So populations will rise between 9 and 10% annually across most feral animal species. So in roughly seven years, the population will double. So that means for us to effectively manage a lot of these feral animals, we have to take out 50% of them to be able to actually have a dent in their population. So that's another, that's another issue that these bodies have. And I mean, it's kind of painful for them to say that because a lot of the time I would like us to have a, you know, a better recreational hunting model. But I also think, as I was saying earlier, I think the actions of the few have tainted the view of the many. So a lot of these bounty programs that they've implemented have had adverse effects on populations. So the fox bounty, the pig bounty that they did up in Queensland, they trialled it in an area. They found that people were taking pigs from other areas into that bounty to just get money. They also found that a lot of these, you know, pig hunters were breeding pigs, specifically leaving you know, the good breeding females so that they could get their money next year. And it just comes down to people just being people. You know, we all want to sort of get, get an income from what we want to do. And and when it comes to hunting, I mean, well, I pretty much say anyone who does any form of hunting would love to do nothing but. But from a government perspective, there's been a lot of bad 
not bad, but adverse effects from allowing these sort of programs to happen. And the other thing that they say specifically about professional shooting versus rec shooting is rec shooters aren't going to do the hard yards necessarily compared to the guys that are getting paid to do it. So I'm guilty of it myself. Like if I can shoot a sandbar 150 metres from the road, I'd do it 10 times over going out 10Ks and then having to lug him back in four or five trips. You know, it's a 40K day just to get your meat on in the freezer. So definitely it's one of those things where it's, you know, it's very, it's again, complicated. Like the way humans interact with the environment and the way these animals proliferate is can also be completely unseen to what we think is like a rational thing. Like let's just make everyone, every deer you shoot, you get 20 bucks. Like ideally that would work, but you know, there'd be some bloke out in, you know, in the bush that's just going to start breeding deer and then just selling them on the slide to get his money. So yeah, there, there is issues with that and it's, there's no real clear cut answer into what the best practice is. All right, I've got a couple of things there because we just spoke about the data and it being skewed and I genuinely believe the data is skewed when we start to look at things like how many animals are harvested off the landscape. Because I don't think there's actually any body or any data that really is 100% accurate. So, and, and what I mean by that is DPI uses harvest reports. And I can tell you plenty of people out there that do not fill in the harvest report properly because they're worried they'll tick the deer box. Someone will find out in the harvest returns that there's deer in that state forest and all of a sudden maybe Mm. their honey hole is a bit of a problem. Mm. Yes, that is impacting us negatively and I do always encourage people to do it correctly and I've been a big, I guess, advocate of that saying I say what state forest I hunt in because it's a big forest. Like it doesn't mm. mean I'm not giving you my GPS coordinates. I'm not giving you the Latin long there, but I have no issues saying, hey, this is where I was. This is where I've gone. Even the YouTube, I just put up trail cam pics uh, or videos on my YouTube and I told you what state forest they came from. It doesn't bother me in that sense, right? So mm. I don't understand the secret sort of nature of it. That also can hurt us because as you just said, you quoted some stats there and saying, hey, this is what the data is showing and this is what they're saying it's showing. But the reality is, A, we've got a problem that fact that it's hearsay essentially. So it's Mm. subjective. It's not definite. This is the data. It's not like the hog deer, which I love down in Vic, how you literally shoot one. You have to take it to a station. They They go through it. They measure it. Excellent. They know exactly what's being harvested and what's not. Legally, of course, there's probably people that do it illegally, which you're never going to stop. That's just anything out there in the world. The next one I have an issue with that is I hunt a lot of state forests. Mm. They are not easy to hunt in because, well, let's be real, deer are bloody smart animals. They know if they can sneak onto that private property where they're not going to get shot at, they're happy. They don't show themselves where they've had hunting pressure. They move. We know that, right? So the issue there is that if you're only using data from the state forest, which I'm probably going to go out on a limb and say that's probably the only data that's relatively accurate out there in, for people to use, and that's why they ask you how many animals did you harvest, et cetera, et cetera. But then we've got such a large amount of areas where recreational hunters can't access. So 
you're almost asking, you know, oh, let's liken it. I'm a PE teacher. Let's liken it to sport. You're asking somebody to play tennis against, you know, Novak Djokovic in a wheelchair with <laughs> using his wrong hand. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it just doesn't make sense on how that data can be used when it's not accurately portraying what is going on on the landscape. And then I flip it over to, I loved what you said there, 5% of the hunters, 95% don't. Hey, I, I probably don't disagree with that. I'm a, I'm not a good hunter, I'll be honest. So there's a lot of better hunters out there that are way more successful than I am. And, and that's cool. I've got no issue with that. I look at the US instead. They take 6 million deer off the landscape each year. Now, I was listening to a podcast over there and they were saying how that that 6 million that come off is needed to come off. But 95% of that 6 million or whatever the number is to take off the landscape is from hunting, not car accidents, not predation, not any of those things. So then I look at it and go, okay, so – now we've got a further issue in this country with that data of private property. You know, I don't have private property access personally myself. I'm lucky a couple of mates take me to theirs. The reality is a lot of people are in that situation where they don't have that private access, which then comes to the next one. So now we've got no private property. Well, not no, but you know what I mean? Less mm. private property access. And I understand it. Look, as a farmer, it's your land. You do what you want. I fully respect that. Whether you let me on, you don't let me on, your rules, whatever. Totally understand. National parks are off limits and we've got so many national parks here in New South Wales. And I'm talking mainly New South Wales because that's the state that I know and each state and territory is different. So we're then limited to state forests and that's where they're calculating the data from. It just, it's not apples for apples. We're talking just, there's so many variables here that aren't being taken into the equation when people are quoting some of that data. That's what I think anyway. No, I would agree with you there. I'm lucky in the sense, and speaking very anecdotally here, I'm lucky in the sense that I don't have to hunt state forests. You lucky bugger. (laughs) I like hunting state forests. I'm definitely keen to get into it. I, I, I do like the idea of the challenge. Um, the bow is enough of a challenge for me, even on private. But yeah, anecdotally speaking, a few of my properties that I hunt, um, they're sort of in the sort of central area of the Great Dividing Range in New South Wales, sort of around the Canberra region. And um, we're completely surrounded by National Park on a few of these, on a few of my blocks. And um, I can say... And also one of the blocks also borders a state forest. But I can say from anecdotal experience, the deer numbers that roll down from the national parks is extensive. So I think I think it's hard to say that state forests are the same as national parks. But from the perspective of the Invasive Species Council, they think wreck hunters are bad because when we go on the block, we stomp around and we make all these deer goats more transient they know that humans are coming after them they know they're targeted then you know they're not coming out late at night when they're not coming out until late at night to feed and stuff like that compared to on these private blocks i mean i'll see sandbar at four o'clock three o'clock during the day and in state forests i've heard that's pretty unheard of and yeah i I can't say that that you know it's not going to have an impact in that regard I think I think the studies just need to be, as you say, broadened out. But in regards to the national parks, the main way that they control 
D species at the moment is just shooting them out of a helicopter. So their stats are getting, you know, they're getting a fair few, but I mean, at least where I'm hunting, it's very thick. So I think thermal imaging is their, you know, what they like to think of their silver bullet doesn't necessarily work in this really, really densely vegetated stuff. And from a sandbar hunter's perspective, that's usually where they hang out. So, Look, there's yeah. probably people yelling at the radio or whatever they're listening on at the moment because a couple of things we haven't even touched on. You just talked about technology. You talked about thermals and State Forest, perfect example. You can't shoot at night. So all of a sudden we've got a species that are primarily moving around at night or, mm. you know, late evening, early morning, especially in State Forests they're off the table. You can't shoot them, which fair enough. I get it. I understand the safety side of it, of how they're doing it. We're then talking about professional shooters. They also have access to semi-automatic weapons. So Mm. we're then saying, okay, these guys can shoot faster and more. um, they're probably going to have more targets to shoot at as well because of the environment that they're going on. And I know that there's a lot of- pro- yeah, Don't forget the suppressors as well. Yeah, well, suppressors as well. And I know a lot of property owners that would not let recreational hunters on, even if they were far more experienced than someone with the professional banner. Mm. That is a concern as well. So straight away, there's just all these, I guess, little hurdles for hunters that I feel we don't have a voice in some of those things. Like that National Feral Deer Plan, I know we had a double S, double A representative on it but when i looked at the hunting side of things i just sat there and went well, man what are you really doing to advocate for hunting here because i think we can be valuable now i'm not saying that hunters as you said let's use the five percent and the 95 percent. so if you're saying that five percent of the hunters are really successful and 95 percent aren't well that to me opens the door for opportunities for the 95% who might not be great hunters to be able to get access to national parks, have a shooting lane, have bait mm. stations. You said it yourself, and it's I think it's human nature. I agree with you there. If you can shoot something 150 metres from a road and get your car there or 15 kilometres into the bush, what are you picking? completely agree. You're going to do the 150 metres. I don't think anyone out there would be going, oh, I want the 15K just to torture myself. Mm. Um, although I just did a podcast on the, the DU-135, which is a 135-mile ultramarathon, which is 200-something kilometres. So there are people out there that do like to torture themselves, so I will say that. Then we have all – there's just so many other elements to it that I just sit there and go, hmm. Yeah, it's, it's definitely hard to conceptualise in that regard, definitely. Yeah. And I think – where hunters aren't respected for a few reasons. And I think one of the reasons, especially from a scientific perspective, is we don't know what the impact of hunting will be if we let it into the national parks. It could make all of the other programs that they're trying to input completely impossible, you know? We could push the deer further and further away into more sensitive areas, which is their main concern. It's like, we want to hit the flat country. We want to hit the riverbeds. We want to hit spots where it's nice for us to be where obviously the deer think it's nice. But if we scare them off a bit and we get them up into the hills and, you know, then they're starting to impact some of the more sensitive alpine areas, then it also becomes a trouble. It's like we honestly don't know enough about the impact of recreational hunting on deer species and then their interaction with the environment that we're trying to protect in these national parks. So I think from a, from a national parks perspective, 
they want as little traffic in there as possible. They don't want people four-wheel driving because, you know, it damages, you know, causes erosion, stuff like that. You know, there's a whole magnitude of different sort of things that humans will eventually, you know, lead to problems happening in the environment. So I completely agree with everything you're just saying there is that when we're looking at it from a hunting perspective, you're only thinking about that. You're only thinking, oh, I'm going to hunt and take deer off the landscape in the national park. That's a positive. But you're not looking at those other sides of things, which might be, you know, rubbish, tire marks. There's a whole thing. Now we'll talk about Boys. back to the bush. Yeah, well, we'll talk about back to the bush in a moment because I know you uh, you've watched his stuff, and I'm mm. a big fan of bushy. And the whole premise of you know locking down national parks and then fire trails aren't maintained. Again, I look at state forests. I've been to many state forests, and they're putrid. Well, there's no other word for it. People leave their shit everywhere mm. and it's disgusting. And I'm not saying it's hunters because state forests are open to everybody, but there's got to be an element of people that are out there hunting doing this as well. You can't say we're 100% squeaky clean as a hunting community in state forests. I know that definitely cannot be the case. Then I see a big issue here is, oh, I've got to word this correctly, is the trophy hunting side of it. 100%. Yeah. Now, we know trophy hunting, you're going to go for the male of the species. Mm. I'm not saying people shouldn't trophy hunt, and I want to make that clear. Do what makes you happy. But I can see how that can be taken from the other side's perspective of people going, well, that's not actually doing that much to impact the population barely anything if you have the chance to shoot exactly if you have the chance to shoot a stag or a buck compared to a hind or a doe to try and limit the population you want to be taking the hind and doe every day of the week because that male can service a multitude of females and they can have fawns etc as opposed to the opposite way if you shoot just the male well you know there's another male to take his place so those females are going to get pregnant anyway and you yeah. haven't done anything. So I don't think anyone can argue with that science. That That's the reality. Yeah. Now, that is a concern too because I understand that people then push the trophy hunting side. And you made a good point there when you said hunters come in, they potentially take a stag or a buck, pass up on other things. They only take one because meat spoilage. And I'm not against that in the sense of wasting meat. I don't want to see any animal just shot and left to rot because that causes its own problems, such as you know feeding other feral pests. That's not a great thing. So there's, look, it is such a multifaceted, nuanced argument. So many sides that impact different things that you might not be thinking about. So I'm completely with you there. When we start to talk about poisoning, Do you feel it's because it's the most cost-effective option that that seems to be the one that is the, I guess, silver bullet? I would say so. That would be the reasoning. But that being said, studies in the 1980s, when 1080 was first being deployed, they were saying that there can 1080 on its own can't be used as the silver bullet. There has to be more. There has to be a you know a total management system for these animals. And, and even in modern science, obviously, we'll say the same thing. 1080 is the most cost-effective cost option. The area that they can cover with these baiting programs from a helicopter is way greater than what you could do on foot. 
the manpower to do non-aerial baiting is obviously more. The manpower to get dudes like ourselves out there to go out and shoot all of this stuff, that's the cost would just skyrocket. Um, so there's not a lot of funding in regards to feral animal control at this point in time. Like we spend more on thousand other different things. I'm not an economist. I can't tell you about, you know, the breakdown of where our tax dollars go, but I can tell you that conservation and, and feral deer and, you know, other feral species management, they're not getting a large percentage. And it comes back to attitudes of what people want and think are, is important. And I don't think the general population really have an understanding of of what feral animals really even are, what impacts they have. They just, you know, flick on the telly and read whatever shows up and that's whatever they take is face value. And, I mean, everyone's guilty of, of doing that and just, you know, accepting whatever information is in front of you. But, yeah, I, I definitely do think from a perspective of most cost-effective methods, 1080 is the easiest way to do the most amount of damage to these animals. I'm with you there. I think that that is where 1080 is like the standout and that's what scares me because then I don't think it's also looked at of the economic benefits that hunting brings to the community. I don't think it's the – they're not offset, if that makes sense. Like 1080 is not bringing any money into that local area. They're going to dump it out of probably helicopters like they're doing in New Zealand. Mm. It's primarily done – to save spending money and employing a multitude of people. Um, I'm not a big fan of the aerial culling. I don't think it's – I think it's a waste of um, a lot of money because, you know, the figures that I've been given from like a day is between sort of $60,000 and $80,000 a day. That's a lot of money. And then when you look at the number getting taken off the landscape, geez, they're getting expensive these, you know, per deer. I Mm. think that there's ways that we could do something very, very similar – but almost offset the costs or be far cheaper. Like if you're talking $80,000, that's someone's wage. You could have someone sitting in a bloody stand overlooking a bait station with a a person paying 100 bucks to come and shoot a deer so they can harvest the meat every night and take away, what, 28 days holiday or not even 20 days holiday and all of a sudden, man, you're making money or that person might even pay for themselves within reason mm. compared to us sending people out on, a, on the chopper. You might not take as many, but you're probably funding enough to have multiple stations out there, multiple people using them. I just think it's a, a very easy tick box solution and that's why I sort of grow up to it because I do honestly believe that if 1080 is introduced to target deer, I won't be eating it personally, and I'm yeah. really curious to see your thoughts of it knowing, you know, your background. Would you be eating the meat if there's 1080 dumped in that area? I personally I personally wouldn't, um, but we can't say how they're going to implement it. They haven't provided any real plans about its application. So Yeah, it's a guessing game. It's guesswork, and we like to extrapolate, and we like to think we know what they're going to do. But in general, I imagine from my perspective – the best usage that they could do for an aerial herbivore baiting program would be in the national parks and hunting's not allowed there for human consumption anyway. So I think in, that's the only place where I'd go, go for gold. If they want to introduce it into state forests or where people are harvesting for meat, again, it's difficult. 
And then again, obviously, you've got National Park adjacent blocks, like the, the property that I hunt, surrounded by three quarters of a million acres of National Park. If they bait air all around it, would I eat the sandbar there knowing that they can travel up to 10, 15 k's in a day? Probably not, would be my answer. A, because, I mean, all sorts of stuff will kill you, but 1080 is one of the ones, as we all know, that is truly horrific way to die. And, and there's no antidote. There's no, there is no antidote. No, that's for sure. And one of the things that I'd be excited for us to sort of value as a society would be potentially introducing genetic specific control methods. So that's something that's obviously bears a lot of controversy in its first right because people are very opposed to genetically modified foods and stuff like that. So it already bears a, bo- a bad social connotation. But I think one thing that I reckon is could be very important for, for example, feral cat species and foxes is if they can, you know, genetically modify a control agent that would be able to change the genome to stop these animals from being able to reproduce or, you know, something like that. And there are things in the works in regards to genetic control methods, but it's 10, 15 years off. And, you know, if the population doubles every, you know, seven years, we're going to be in the, in the shit well and truly um, by the time that these things come out. So from a government's perspective, they're just wanting to put a dent in is what we have now by the cheapest and most widely uh, available method, and that sadly is 1080 poison. Yeah, look, a couple of things there. I read quite a few articles on the use of like a sterilisation through and basically exactly what you said that the animals would be sterilized and they i think they said yes it's about 10 15 years away i I did read even 20 and then i read that it will take a damn long time for it actually to be super effective as well Mm. for it to spread throughout the population for them to give birth to other animals that are now sterile etc etc so that was a really interesting read and to be honest whilst from a hunting perspective i'm sitting there going that's terrible from the other side of the coin compared to having 1080 out there, I think that's a better option. So like people might hate me for saying that, but I would prefer that method over, you know, the 1080 style because it's not a 100%. nice way to go. Then the other thing is, again, you're right, we're speculating on some of this stuff, but I've seen the deer aggregator, which is what the National Invasive Species Council has developed, and that's in relation to basically having a – it's like a platform that if a kangaroo wants to get to the bait, they can step onto it and their feet can't go through the squares, so it pushes it down and it closes the lid for the poison as opposed to deer can step through the grid so the lid remains open, they can eat it. Watching the video of it, I do have some concerns from like different areas aside. And look, that's a prototype. I will say that they're in testing phase and things like that. But if they were to use that, I then would sort of sit there and go, well, what's the difference between a bait station and hunters shooting over bait? Now, Americans do that. We're not allowed to do that here. Could that potentially be another feather in the cap for hunters and a lot of people out there might be go that's not true hunting you're right but i'd prefer that method than having poisoned animals out there that are dying this horrible death and meat being wasted so i think sometimes as hunters we need to be mindful of the circumstances in the scenario and be able to sort of take a step back and go hey what's what's beneficial what are we truly trying to achieve here 
Are we trying to make sure that people can feed their families? If that's the catch cry, then, well, you know, shooting something over baits, not that big a deal. Making it so that you only shoot does instead of stags, not that big a deal. You know, do I know a lot of people be sitting there going, but I want antlers and I want a trophy and, and blah, blah, blah. And I get it. I understand why they do that side of it. But if you're doing that side of it, you're sort of then at odds to the conservation side as well. So they don't go hand in hand. And I think that's one of the biggest issues that the other side can't fathom. And again, I'm giving a perspective across the board. I'm not saying that I disagree with trophy hunting. I'm not saying that I dis, you know, want that gone or anything like that. But I think it is something that we need to be mindful is that sometimes can provide some ammunition to the opposite side. I'm not saying we stop it, but hey, that's the reality. Yeah, I would say that's the case. And I think no matter what myself or what you say about, you know, the value of targeting, you know, non-male um, animals, I think regardless of that, I think it's something that we need to sort of be aware of is the fact that we aren't other countries. Europe has had these animals managed for thousands of years from a danish perspective they have a very structured and regulated form of hunting and from a u.s perspective they have the same and we can't just say look i watch heaps of american hunting shows those guys you know it's such a big part of their culture and they throw so much money at it and i think as australians we like to sort of emulate that style but i also think where our circumstance down here is entirely different our ecology is entirely different and the attitude from our government towards these animals is entirely different and we honestly don't have the industry backing or the political backing that the yanks have in that situation specifically and this is one of the things that the invasive species council say because i know you touched upon it briefly earlier that why don't we make a hunting model where you know hunters are more valued and we're allowed access into areas where we're not currently allowed access and from an american's perspective they've got a whole adjacent sort of regulatory body to the police in in regards to controlling people getting access to this so can we say that you know sally from sydney who lives in bondi is wanting us to set up game wardens that will go out and make sure people aren't shooting the wrong animals in the national parks or making sure that they're in the right areas on their target, you know, on their app that will say, look, you're allowed to hunt this animal here, you can only take one, et cetera, et cetera. The costs of employment and staffing that sort of stuff grows very exponentially because, A, you know, America's a big place, but their populations, you know, I can't tell you the exact numbers, would be over 350 million. So we've only got 24 million and we've got, a, you know, a greater land size. So... From a staffing perspective, like, I don't think we're going to be able to do a hunting model here unless, you know, you can recruit all of your mates to go hunting and you can recruit all of your mates to shoot a deer as often as they can, females included. Because in America, you can draw doe, doe tags, you know, and you, you might not get a stag tag for your region because they've already allocated them all out. So there are people going, oh, I can't shoot a buck. If I do, some bloke's going to come out here and snag me give me a fine we don't have any of that regulatory sort of stuff and i'm not a state forest hunter but how many times do you see the guys coming around checking that you're doing the right thing if ever so it's like we already sort of aren't doing enough in regards to funding you know our interaction with the with you know the environment as hunters so 
that's definitely something that I would love to have happen. I would love for it to be a bigger part of society. I'd love for us to get more animals down. But from a governance perspective, we're a minority. It's easier, easier for them just to cross the, the box and say, we don't want you guys. We don't see the value in you guys because we don't have any power in, in society. And I honestly think it's one of those things where, you know, the actions of a few people, um, you know, Port Arthur and stuff like that have completely ruined us as hunters, have completely ruined, you know, our ability to be autonomous and, you know, provide insight into stuff because we always get lumped in with the, you know, the guys that go out poaching in the national parks or the crazy loony bloke with the semi-auto shooting up shopping centres or whatever. Like the sad thing is as humans, we just cast a net and we like to just say, you're on that side of the fence, we're on this side of the fence and we don't want to talk to you. And I mean, that's how it goes everywhere and, and hunting's especially one of those things in Australia. Oh, look, I agree with a lot of what you just said because I'd love to see the North American model in some form over here, but you're right. The sheer numbers of hunters over there compared to here is not comparable and we've got to understand that. And we do have a much greater land mass as well, so there's more space to cover. So I completely understand that. We don't have the regulatory bodies, agreed. All these things have really hindered hunters in my opinion and then on top of that exactly what you just said people doing the wrong thing you speak to a lot of property owners and one of the reasons they won't let you on is because someone's done the wrong thing there's the media perception that hunters shooters are you know bogans and and that's what they push and the greater proportion of public opinion is probably aligned with what the media do put out into that space and Mm. These are all massive issues that we're not going to be able to just click our hands and fix. It's going to take a lot of long, hard work to do that. That's if we ever get to fix that and have an opportunity where someone actually goes, hey, hunters can be part of the solution, but in a country that is probably, I would say, probably more anti-gun than pro-gun, that's our country. 100%. They're not going to be pushing hunting as an option to have people out there with firearms. I know so many people that I run around and talk to that have no idea that I hunt. And then when I raise it and I talk to them about it, the first thing is say, can you, can you own a gun? And it's like, <laughs> yeah, like yeah. do you realise there's this many people that already own guns? In, they have no idea. They thought guns were banned. And, and this is – unfortunately where we're at so you're right there's so many elements here that we're in i think that you know sometimes i do sit there and i try and be an advocate but i do sometimes think that the horse is bolted and we're trying to shut the gate and it's already way too late some of these things are done way way too late and it's just going to play out and play out and play out And, and look at what's happening in victoria at the moment i think it was only the other day they've trying to reclassify state forests to national parks, which means as soon as they become national parks, all of a sudden the hunting down in Vic, that's gone. So then any of the deer that's getting taken off the landscape by hunters there, that's gone. Uh, Lack of access. Well, where are you going to hunt if you don't have access to private property? We're sometimes our biggest enemies because then I look at it and go, how many people don't want to take someone out or share a spot or – do things like that and I get it to some extent 
but then I don't get it because you potentially are stopping the future generations of having hunting. Whilst you might have a lot of success and you've got all this private access, if you aren't taking new hunters or doing the right thing, and I'm not saying everyone should do it because there are people that do the wrong thing and then they go to the landowners and try and get access on their own. I mean, we just crawl ourselves sometimes and that's what really, I guess, is frustrating about, uh, I guess, the position that we're in. I would agree. And I think you think societally, I don't think we have enough of a presence. And that's one thing in, in my social circle, I'm the only person that really hunts. I've got a lot of friends that have property and they will shoot 40 deer in a night just because they don't want them to eat their crop, stuff like that. But I'm the one that, only one that will go out on my own and hunt for three days straight. And I think I will tell everyone about it. I mean, in my, in my office, I get strange looks. People don't really sort of understand why you'd want to do that when you can go to Coles and get that nice little shiny packet with your steak in there. But with the cost of living and stuff like this, I mean, I think as hunters, the best thing we can do to support our cause is to let people know the value of it. And what I'll do is if I'm shooting sandbar, my freezer's getting full. She's getting full quick. So what I'll do is I'll jerky up half of it and then I'll give out bags, kilos, and people will either go, I'm not touching it. They'll go, I don't trust it because it came out of the paddock. And then you give it to some blokes that will love it. And then they'll go, oh, I want to come out and do it with you. And then in that case, I'll go, sure, come out, we'll, we'll sort it out. And I've taken a few mates out there to varying degrees of success. But the more people you can sort of enlist in this cause, is the better we're going to be able to sort of be, especially in, by, in view of, of the uh of the general public like we can't be just the guys that are getting you know making the headlines for bringing 40 pig or 12 pig dogs into the national parks or shooting some bloke in his swag while he's sleeping in a state forest like we have to do better we have to sort of improve the way that we're perceived otherwise they'll just sweep us under the rug like every bloke who had a semi-auto in the 80s it's just like that's just how it goes and that's sad reality of human nature is if it's going to be one of those issues like people will happily for example, if you don't watch rugby, you wouldn't care if they stopped playing it. But if you care about it, you would you'd fight to keep keep it, you know. And I think that attitude should be, you know, in hunters, and it shouldn't be this secret thing where we go, "Oh, I've got you know these blocks, and I won't let anyone on." If people are genuine and they want to come on, like I've been speaking to a few blokes around some of the blokes, you know, that I've been buying some gear off, like LED laser knocks, Dave. I'm trying to tee up a hunt with him where you can come out and share some of these blocks because he hasn't dropped a sandbar yet. And I'm all for it. I think that's that's how we sort of, you know, benefit is, A, don't make ourselves seem like brutal operators that just go out and just destroy nature and rip up all the good areas with our four-wheel drives. Just play it in as clean a light as you can and people will be more open to it, I think, because most people are either going to go, you know, well, obviously I'm not going to get into vegans, but their opinion of us is horrific. So, but their attitude is more common than people being hunters. So it's like we kind of have to sort of display why we do it. And the fact that I've got friends that are vegan that understand that I hunt, they go, why? That's great. Like you're not causing suffering on an animal longer than the time it takes for me to see it in the paddock and then take it out. They understand that. But then if it's a, you know, all animal lives are equal sort of argument, we get busted up pretty bad. And look, that's 
yeah, you're not going to change the opinions if it's that, that we shouldn't kill any animal because that's just not the reality of life at the moment um, or has it ever been. But um, I think it's – I think you hit it on the head there. It's it's sometimes very interesting. I remember chatting to a bloke who had access down the snowy mountains and he was saying, deer's a pest, we should shoot them all. And I was like, okay. And he was saying, I see mobs of hundreds on the private property I have access to. I was like, okay, how many do you take off a year? And he was, oh, don't quote me, but he said something like, say, 30, maybe more. I was like, okay, you're the only one that hunts it. Yeah. How many people have you taken on? Oh, none. That's my property. Yeah. I was like, well, this is a little bit contradictory here, buddy, because if you're saying that there's too many of them, we need to get rid of them, but then you won't take anybody on to help you and you're only hitting 30 because that's all you can eat in the year or whatever it was that he said, we have a problem here. You're doing the greater hunting community a disservice in my opinion, and it's only my opinion, but then you can't argue when they all get wiped out from poison because, hey, you you didn't contribute, you didn't help out. It's such a I, – yeah, I see both sides. I understand why people don't share properties because properties are really hard fought for. So I can understand why people are secretive and they don't want to take people to them. So I do get that side of it too. And I'm not putting people down if you've got a property and you don't take anyone there. Please don't take it that way. I'm just raising some things that I think are probably issues for the long haul. And fishing's a little bit different. It's very similar. People don't want to share their spots in fishing. Yeah. But fishing, they're not running around with a, you know, a rifle or a shotgun. Ideally, yeah. Yeah, well, maybe they are, I don't know. Um, but the greater public, if you're walking down the, the street with a rod in your hand, no one's running in fear where, you know, you walk down a street with a firearm in hand, I think that's going to be uh, a reaction you don't really want to deal with. So it's, yeah, look, it's a real tough one. It's great that there are people that are hunters that are getting into the space that hopefully can have some sort of positive impact for hunters. And I think we do have to be very, very mindful. I know some people are very headstrong and saying, hey, these animals deserve to be on the landscape. And I'm not saying they're not. They've been here for a damn long time. And I mean, where do you draw the line? This is this is the argument from the other side. I do hear people go the opposite way and say, well, if you want to wipe out deer because they're introduced, well, white people were introduced. Are we now going to take that same approach? Like where do you draw that line and say, hey, from here's the point that we should keep them on the landscape, here's not. And we can talk about that with the environment. As I mentioned before, with Back to the Bush, I love his work. And it's very interesting when you talk about what, plant species were on the landscape here prior to colonization and what is afterwards and what we still deem as a native forest that potentially wasn't completely like that in the past before colonization. Yeah, I think I think we would have lost an ungodly amount of of biodiversity that we never even, you know, studied. You know, yep. there could have been little orchids all sorts of little marsupials that we would never have known existed because our impacts, you know, killed them long before we understood that. And I think pre-Indigenous settlement, there would have been the exact same thing. I mean, we had megafauna here for a long time and it, it took a fair while for the Indigenous people to take them out. But honestly, wherever humans go, no matter what your ethnicity is, we will have a negative impact on wherever we are. There is way too many people here everywhere. And 
you know, these effects will compound and we still need to feed people and where population is going to grow so much larger and we still need to feed people. So from an argument of a hunting perspective, it's like, yes, they're a, they're a resource, but do we value these animals that come from other countries or in high abundance? And then we just get rid of, well, not get rid of, but allow all of our little natives to die. And then all of a sudden we're just another, you know, Bulgaria or another America where all we've got is deer, goats, rabbits and foxes. Like that's sadly what homogenization of ecosystems becomes if you leave it, if you just let these things go to their own devices. And I love Australia. I love how unique it is. I've lived overseas. And honestly, it's not that interesting over there. I can go out on, a, on an Arvo in Australia and see stuff that you know never knew existed, you know, random orchids that sit up halfway up to your chest height, things like that. In Europe, there's none of that. And they've already killed all that stuff. I mean, the Romans have been up there rooting around for thousands of years. They did more damage than we could ever really understand. And I think that sort of thing is what we're trying to avoid as environmental scientists is we're trying to preserve the unique and beautiful nature of Australia in its all of its forms. And just because you don't see the little betongs and all the little, you know, marsupials and, you know, little different birds and stuff doesn't mean that they're not important because you just want to go out and shoot deer. I mean, it's one of those things is like if we want the world to be identical no matter where you go, that's sadly what will happen if you just let these things go to their own devices. And, I mean, it's just one of those things. It's tough. All of these issues, you know, interplay between environment, economy, you know, social issues, equality issues, all of these things come into effect. And it's obviously a, a quite a difficult thing to debate. And from my perspective, it's, it's been, it's been very interesting to, to have these conversations because I don't necessarily think we have disagreed on anything in particular. I think we both sort of had a very sort of equal and sort of give and take conversation about these things. But I think, you know, for every conversation like this, there's a thousand conversations that aren't like this. And I think going back to what I was saying earlier is if we can just, you know, open up the comms about these issues and not just go all environmental scientists are tree-hugging greenies, you know, I'll go out there and I'll pump foxes three times a week. I'll shoot, well, I haven't shot any pigs yet because I haven't had the opportunity, but, you know, I'll do whatever I can in my power to, you know, improve the area that I'm living in and I think that's the attitude a lot of us should have regardless of it goes against your trophy trophy hunting values. Look I think you summarized it perfectly I've uh, really enjoyed our conversation tonight and one of the things I'm very big on and I said it over and over again is having an open mind and being open to listening to other people's perspectives and opinions and that is how Decent conversations happen. If you go in and you've got your back up against the wall and you're not even interested in what someone else is saying or you're going to shut down their conversation straight away, you wouldn't like that done to you and that is something that we should all be mindful of. So when we're having a chat about these things or we're talking to people in future, have a listen. Think about, hey, from someone else's perspective because you're not the only one that has a perspective on all these issues and I guarantee there'll be people out that disagree with both you and I here tonight and that's fine. They're entitled to do so. But what I would say is just be open-minded to some of these things and have that discussion and grow as a person because I think that's the benefit of these discussions is you grow your knowledge, grow as a person and you might see something and understand why. You don't necessarily have to agree but you might understand where someone else is coming from.
Eric, really, really appreciate your time tonight coming on the podcast. Great conversation. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. So, mate, we're uh, definitely going to get you back on because I know you do a fair bit of hunting and we'll get into that side of it. I think that's uh, a different conversation altogether and I don't want to put them together. I don't think that would do uh, either topic justice. So, mate, appreciate you coming on. Thank you for your time and your insights tonight and I know people are going to like this episode because I have myself. Yeah, beautiful. And yeah, thanks for having me, Matt. And um, yeah, I'm definitely open to sort of have discussions with people. Um, I'll uh, I'll send you my Instagram link and you can chuck it up there if people want to, you know, get in contact um, and discuss some of these things. Hopefully I didn't bugger up um, too many of these uh, convers- uh, statements and stuff that I've been making. I've obviously had a full work day and then set up a big tent for a party that we're having here tomorrow. So yeah, hopefully it all came across all right. And yeah, thanks for having me again. Mate, I know it did. I uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. Got a lot out of it. So appreciate it. All right, listeners. I know you've taken a lot out of that one. It was a really good one. So bye for now. If you have a topic, guest, question, or any gear that you want to hear about on the podcast, shoot us an email, australianhuntingandbeyond at gmail.com. Alternatively, Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. All the links are in the show notes. If you haven't already, make sure you give us a review and subscribe to our podcast on whatever platform you're listening on. Thanks for joining us, and we'll catch you next time.